Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Aren't you thankful for the peace? The peace that we feel now, the peace that passes all understanding. I'm thankful for the peace that I feel in this house every time we gather together. Jesus said where two or three are gathered, there I'll be in the midst of them. And when God shows up, his peace comes with him. His strength shows up with him, and I'm thankful for that. If you would join me this morning in the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue this morning with our discipleship project. We began a new series last week in the call to unity. We're going to take our text this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, reading verse 1 through 3. The subject of unity is something that cannot be brushed over. It's certainly not something that we can just lightly gloss over, but the subject of unity is absolutely imperative for the body of Christ. How many know we've got a mission? We've got a mandate and it's going to take unity to be able to carry that out. So Ephesians, if you found it, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, if you would look to the screen if you don't have your Bibles this morning. The Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another, in love. In verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so this morning we're going to just talk about the attitude of unity. The attitude of unity. If you would, just put your Bibles down. Let's lift our hands to heaven. Let's ask the Lord to touch us together. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for the privilege, God, that you've allowed us to be in this place at this very hour. We're asking you to move and minister in this house, God, however you see fit. Lord, let your word be spoken, God, to every heart, every mind. Anoint the hearer. Anoint the speaker, God. It is not me. But, Lord, it is your word, God, that will find a place and change us, Lord, in our hearts. And so we're asking for it now, humbly, in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. You may be seated. Humiliated and united. This was a story of a ragtag band of men who found themselves together with a common cause in an outlaw camp. These men were fugitives. They were hiding from a political system that had caused them to end up on the wrong side 
of the law. They made their way, their living, so to speak, on pure survival instinct. It was in the wilderness where they resorted to that they began to provide homestead protection to landowners. They provided this protection against less reputable thieves and robbers who would seek to come and steal and kill from these landowners. This was customary in their day, and it was also customary that in exchange for their services, that these landowners would often give something of their own herds, something from their flocks as, so to speak, a peace offering or a payment in exchange for this protection. There was a man by the name of Nabal, a wealthy man, a man who was increased with riches. The Bible says of him in 1 Samuel 25 that he had 3,000 sheep. He had 1,000 goats. He had increased riches and goods. But he did not come to that by giving anything away. He hoarded unto himself everything that he would gain. And he would not be what one would call a generous man. The Bible says that he was surly. He was uncaring of anyone else's needs but his own. He was unscrupulous in his doings. He was hard to deal with, hard to speak to in every area of life and in business. The very name that he wore meant fool or senseless. And he wore that name very proudly. First Samuel 25 and 4, the band of men that were with David hear about the sheep shearing of Nabal's herd in Carmel. Sheep shearing in that day was an annual event around those farms. It required eight hours of labor. It was labor intensive. And it would be an event that would call for great celebration in the camp of Nabal. First and foremost, it would profit him with the wool that he would increase, would go to his net worth, and would propel his self-importance. He fed his workers well, however, only to incentivize their work and increase their productivity that would ultimately lead to his bottom line gain for his own wealth. David and his men thought that this would be a good time to come to Nabal for food in return for the protection that they had been providing him in the borders of his land. Surely this man could see the profit. Surely that he could see the, the good in providing them something in exchange. Surely they would find grace in his eyes and his generosity would be profound toward them in giving meat in return for their services. However, Nabal was not what would one call a good man. He was a hard man, and he was not inclined to share anything with them. But rather than just telling them no, rather than just saying, I don't have anything to give, Nabal shamed them, and he disrespected their leader, and he called David nothing more than a vagabond and a fugitive of Saul. This act of disrespect, incensed David and his men, and they took up arms to requite the vengeance that was due unto Nabal in his entire household. David said in the morning, the same thing be done to me if I don't leave anything living, male 
and everything. David and his men would be out for blood. But one of Nabal's men, one of his young men, observed his master's response to the men of David. And he feared the retaliation that would come against them. But no one could speak to Nabal, not even his own household. No one could successfully reason with him because his attitude made it difficult for reasonable conversation. So the servant made his way to his wife, Abigail. The young man warned her of the impending attack of David and the 400 men that would be with him. And Abigail takes immediate action. Secretly, she begins to plan and she begins to plan for peace, collecting large amounts of what would prove in the end to be a peace offering, raisins, figs, grain, and loaves of bread, five sheep slaughtered, dressed, and packaged. Abigail took these supplies and laid them on donkeys, and she prepares to meet the impending retaliation that is coming into the camp. But as David's men approach, Abigail does something seemingly different than what anybody else would have done in that present situation. Abigail bowed herself to the ground and she appealed for his forgiveness. She confesses the foolish behavior of Nabal and acknowledged his prophetic blessing that was upon the life of David for future leadership. By this very act of humility, by this very single act of grace, Abigail was successful in not only saving her own life, but the lives of every male in her entire household. What Nabal lacked in character, Abigail more than compensated for in initiative. Subsequently, Abigail returns home to find this surly man in an all-out drunken party. He was feasting on his own increase. He was hosting a festival in his own honor, and she leaves him until the morning, telling him neither good nor bad. But on the morning, she arose and she let him in on the news that he narrowly adverted a heart, uh, an attack by David and his army. And with this news, Nabal suffered a heart attack, perhaps even a stroke in some commentaries say, and lapses into a coma. Within days, Nabal is dead, possibly from the heart attack as his heart stopped beating. The point in this is all this is that Nabal's selfishness Nabal's anger only alienated him from the people that were closest to him. And in the end, no one mourned his demise. But Abigail, her quick thinking, her humility saved the family from certain disaster because attitude is always the key in conflict. Anger only incites violence, but peace brings much needed unity. The attitude in which one approaches a dispute will either escalate the anxiety of the situation or it will de-escalate the situation bringing peace and unity. If our attitude is one of consolation, we can diffuse anger and we can promote unity. And hear me, we must promote 
unity. We must promote unity by peacefully offering openness and discussion. And we must humbly seek a unifying resolution. Consolation and peace will only come through the wisdom of grace and absolute humility. Who knows in this house today that anger has a way of spreading. Anger can spread and anger can ignite and anger can be contagious. Expression of anger can quickly spread to others and ignite more anger. Rage, feeding on the anger of others can quickly result in a mob mentality. Peaceful protests easily escalate from organized demonstrations to raucous riots when attitudes of expressed anger are transferred into the crowd. Perhaps many of us have even witnessed this, maybe not in person, but you can scarcely turn on the news today and not see that somewhere in America someone is in an all-out revolt. Someone is in an all-out assault on other individuals. This prevalent thing in our society is so, so near to where we are today. Our college campuses have become an all-out battleground. It's people with opposing difference in views and in viewpoints come together to perhaps just speak to each other, to perhaps have a debate with each other, but quickly anger is incited. Quickly, uh, this, this whole thing becomes from peaceful to an absolute all-out assault, and in the end, mayhem and individuals incite anger and violence is the cause. We find an example of this in the Bible, nothing it's new under the sun, even though it is very prevalent of where we are today. It's nothing new. The Bible records a crowd of seemingly disorganized people suddenly become united as a whole as they chanted over and over again, crucify him, crucify him. What began with curious bystanders, what began with just spectators assembled to see what would be brought against Jesus and his accusations quickly began into an all-out assault on him. It began with chief priests and Pharisees as they upset the religious convictions and the nationalistic views and the loyalties of the Jewish people. And what first sounded like a suggestion of random voices quickly became a concophony of sound and a united chorus as they screamed, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd was ignited by only angry action by those who intentionally disrupted the attitudes of the people and the people that hated Jesus. Somewhere along the way, I know that there are people here and I am one of them who's experienced anger in your life. We've all had a brush, at least, with anger, some more than others, perhaps not particularly a mob mentality or been part of a mob. I would certainly hope not with pitchforks and torches and things of that nature, but we've all experienced anger to the point to where we could possibly, if I can say it in our vernacular, put hands on someone. <laughs> the fact of the matter is is that anyone can pick a fight, but only the wise can find peace and compromise. Our natural response is to lash out in the same spirit as the one initiating the confrontation. Tempers begin to flare, and we want to respond in kind. If someone says something hurtful to you, your natural response is, oh yeah, well, same to you, <laughs> and more of it. 
someone says something against you, you have this mentality as a child and say, I know you are, but what am I? And then someone's mama gets said something about, and then we're at fisticuffs and everybody is in trouble. But hear me today, it's a natural response in us. It wells up into us as almost not being able to be taught. It's just something in us. Perhaps it is that old sinful nature that begins to rise as these responses come seemingly easy with no teaching or no instructions. Before we know it, we're in an all-out battle. We're in an absolute fight. It becomes a tit-for-tat situation, a back-and-forth, a verbal exchange that sometimes has the potential to become physical. Now, we think about this in the world, but how many know that the temperature outside can certainly affect the temperature in here? And sometimes we can find ourselves in an, in an irrational behavior because someone presents something to us that crosses us the wrong way. And before we know it, our old man has begun to show his ugly face and yes, this can happen in the church. To respond with a different attitude and a spirit must be the absolute goal in every situation that we find that we may be opposed. We must seek to consciously and consistently resist the temptation to resolve and to respond in anger. And it will no doubt take the power of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, to bring peaceful mediation and unity into every situation. Proverbs 15 and 1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. In the world of hostage negotiators, people that perhaps are there to negotiate peaceful resolutions in situations, these men and women, they don't have the luxury of being able to give in to their flesh, so to speak. They don't have the, the luxury of being able to give in to anger. They must speak calmly and they must speak peace and seek peace in a charged environment where angry opposition exists. And as the church today, I rise today to tell us that if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be, we must be peaceful negotiators in this world today. We must seek to peace, to bring peace and peaceful resolution because confusion and anger should never accompany us into any situation that we find ourselves in. We ought to be like Paul said. We ought to be able to put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation. We ought to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And he said to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so peace should follow us. Peace should go before us and behind us. And we should be peacemakers. Peacemakers are valued in time of war. They are those that can enter into a situation and bring peace into those angry episodes. Hear me today. We must be peace negotiators in this time of war. We are in an all-out battle in this world, and God needs some people who will stand and speak the word of truth and love and give everything we have to developing peace. Jesus pronounced a very special blessing over these types of people. In Matthew 5 and 9, his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children 
of God. I don't know about you, but I want to be a child of God. But in order for me to be a child of God, I've got to be a peacemaker. We must allow the Spirit of God to develop an attitude, an attitude of peace in our lives. And here is the key. We must allow God to rid us of all pride in order to live as much as possible a peaceful life in all godliness. Pride incites division, but grace, grace brings unity, and we need unity. And it's a common cause in our American culture, the promotion of competition. And hear me today, I don't think there's anything wrong with friendly competition. But while we condemn prejudice in our world, it's a very big thing now about how everything is so scrutinized. We, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and, and I'm, I'm for that. We don't, we don't want to create prejudice. We don't want to be people that are holier than thou, so to speak, to stand on some pedestal. But it is, it is common in our world because everyone wants to be superior at something. It's in us. It's just in us to want more, to strive for superiority. But the promotion of that superiority and that, that promotion of trying to be better has the potential to create pride in us and can cause division. Now, I, I just... Probably shouldn't meander too long here, but I've heard recently of a man who is now an evangelist who talked about how he played sports in school and, and he got real good at it. And, and so he just, he excelled. He went to college. He was on his way possibly even into professional ball, whatever he was playing. But I heard him recently say that all of that is good in and of itself, but what that does is it can put pride we were her team pride. We have pride for everything. And, and that's on the surface, that's okay. But what tends to happen is that pride can get down on the inside of someone. And the next thing we know, we, we think we're superior than everyone else around us. No one can speak to us. No one can talk to me. I, I know who I am and, and you better find out who I am if you don't know. And, 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 and don't talk to me about anything. And so that has the potential to get in our spirit, to get in our flesh. It's early in our childhood we experience the feeling of accomplishment, but we also experience the stinging pain of defeat. And so in us, we have this innate desire to minimize that pain of defeat, and we're taught to extol our strengths and to compete for acceptance. We're taught to compete for a position, to so-called fight for a right, to be in some sort of position or authority of superiority. Slogans are adopted. We've heard these. We're number one. We're number one. Girl power. USA. USA. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be patriotic, but these things have the ability to get in the minds of a people that would create a superiority complex in them that says we're number one and you 
you're just out here on the, uh, on the outskirts and we can come up with this yacht club type mentality where no one is accepted because we are number one and we have the power. But some, even some, have become even more incendiary. Incendiary uh, 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 slogans have been adopted with mal intent such as white power or black power. These types of slogans, these phrases have an intended purpose. They are there to cause anger. They are there to go into a crowd and cause arrogance and resentment. But we should all exhibit an appropriate level of patriotism, but we can't allow that to get in the the inside of us to to create some sort of some superiority in us that we are better than anyone. If anybody ought to be self-denying, if anybody ought to be saying, I'm not superior, I'm decrease as he increase it ought to be the church of the living God can become ingrained in our carnal nature it can get inside of us our attitudes if they are not pure if we do not display wholesome characteristics we run the risk of being selfish and we can become prideful we must hear me we must identify any area in our lives that has become this way and we must ask God's forgiveness and we must ask God to deliver us from pride, from prejudice, from arrogance and anger. We are in an angry and volatile world. Jesus said himself that in the end, nation shall rise against nation. That word in the Greek is ethnos. That means ethnicities. And you can look all around today and see how, how uh, past events have caused this resentment in the hearts of people. And, 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 and literally, ethnicity is rising against ethnicity. But hear me, if there's any entity in the earth today that needs to be absolutely unified, not only in mind, not only in spirit, but in race, it ought to be the church of the living God. If we are going to be the church of the living God, we cannot afford to get in the middle of the debate. We can't afford to get in the middle of the conflict. We can't afford to let our voice out and take one side or the other. But we need to take this book and we need to hold it to our heart and say there's a better way. There's a much more perfect way. You don't have to pick one way or the other. You can pick this way and this way will take you to where you need to go. We must be the church of the living God. Only God's grace can mediate a resolution of cultural hostility or political hostility. Hear me today. God is not American. God is not, he's not a part of any ethnic uh, uh, background or ethnic. Yes, he was a Jew when he walked on earth, but God is God and God is sovereign. God is not Republican. God is not Democratic. God is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and it must be his way. At some point or another, it's safe to say that we're all going to find ourselves in the position of a minority. And perhaps our rights will be violated. Perhaps our pride will be injured. Sometimes hurt pride can be more than physical injury. It can be just as real and just as painful. And violation of our perceived rights can produce real feelings of resentment. No one, hear me, no one wants to feel taken advantage of. No one 
wants to be in a position of being taken advantage of. Embarrassment, anger, or shame comes when we feel that our opinions or our contributions have been disregarded or discredited. But hear me, there is a right way to respond during these times. Defensiveness and aggression are only reactions of injured pride. And those who are offended often lash out angrily in self-defense. There's an internal trigger on the inside of us that seeks to compensate for the perceived violation. And retaliation is often a mechanism in response of the attack. It's the old eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth syndrome in action. But sometimes, subconsciously, we rationalize our feelings by thinking that if you hurt me, then I have the right to hurt you back. If you do something for me, then I have the right to get back at you. My grandmother had a little rhyme. It probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but she'd say, tit for tat, you kill my dog, I kill your cat. <laughs> you do it to me, and I have the opportunity to do it right back to you. It may not even be a serious offense, but when our pride is hurt, it magnifies the offense and the objectiveness becomes more and more difficult in our reaction. In reality, when we feel that our rights have been violated, it's really just our pride that is revealing itself on the surface. And hear me, pride is dangerous. Pride brings the displeasure of God, but humility will always bring God's grace. Pride is the original sin that brought Lucifer down. He said in Isaiah 14 and 13, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. But the end result of that attitude was said in verse 11, thy pomp is brought down to the grave, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Solomon said in Proverbs 16 and 18, pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before a fall. Simply put, pride is a sin. And anything that exalts, exalts itself begins to separate from the grace of God. And the more we defend, hear me now, the more that we defend ourselves, the more we promote our own selfish motives, the more we distance ourselves from God and from the grace of God. And the more we distance ourselves from the grace of God, we put place between ourselves and others and we have more and more contention with others. The more we distance ourselves from the grace of God, not receiving grace and giving grace, the more contention we'll have with everybody else around us. Nothing's right. He didn't shake my hand. He didn't look at me right. It's too hot in here. It's too cold in here. I don't like that song. I can't worship to that. Nothing will be right in our lives. But hear me today, humility is the virtue that allows the cohesion of cooperation to develop. When we humble ourselves before God and others, we will find sufficient grace in every situation that we find ourselves in and it will always lead to unity. First Peter 5 and 5, very, very important. Likewise, ye younger Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you. That's Greek for all of you. 
be subject one to another and clothe, be clothed with humility for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So allow me to reiterate, anger and pride lead to arrogance and arrogance always initiates aggression. But humility will bring absolute and needed unity. Aggression is often the manifestation of the arrogance of pride. And aggressive behavior is often the response when a prideful person is questioned about his or her position in a matter. And hear me today. We have the potential of having that in ourselves. No one is exempt. However, an unexpected response of humility in the situation diffuses the anger it de-escalates the aggression and suppresses the retaliation. One single act of humility can become more powerful than any attack in, in, in aggression, in, in a situation. One single act of humility because only the gift of humility can soothe the savage rage of arrogance. Profound truth, Pro, Proverbs 29 and 22. An angry man stirreth up strife and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. David saying of the grace of humility in the New International Version of Psalm 18 and 29, you save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. He talked about God's evidence of guidance in humility when he said in Psalm 25 and 9, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. I don't know about you, but I need to know his way and the only way that I'm going to find that is to humble myself before God and before others I'm coming to a close if our musicians will find their way to the platform Ephesians 4 2 through 3 we end where we began I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're not always going to see eye to eye. We're not always going to see the way of others, but we must endeavor to keep unity. It's here in this passage of scripture that Paul's rhetoric turns from instruction to admonition and exhortation. Paul speaks to the Ephesian church and tells them what the church and the individual believer is called to do. It's called to show the world a glimpse of how God is going to recreate heaven and earth the church the church made up of imperfect human beings will be what shows the world around it what heaven will be like the church made up of imperfect people will be what people around it can see as an example of this is what it will be like Paul admonishes us 
to walk worthy of the Christian calling in terms of Christian harmony. Because divisiveness is an outright rejection of the calling of God. Paul lists three virtues recording lowliness, meekness, and long-suffering. All pertain to one central theme, and that is self-denial. Jesus Christ exhibited these virtues on earth and so must his body in the earth today. He provided the ultimate example of what it is to deny one's own rights, to set aside one's own prerogatives for the sake of others. Paul referred to himself as a prisoner of the Lord and stated that believers must accept these same bonds in the bond of peace. Now at first glance, at first notice, these words together, this phrase, can seem to be a juxtaposition or a contradiction. But they do not contradict each other. When he said the bond of peace, what Paul is explaining is that the reality of true peace comes at the highest cost. The reality of true peace comes at the highest cost in the willingness of one to lay down their own liberties for the sake of achieving a higher calling, a higher corporate purpose, and a higher freedom in Jesus Christ. This is the attitude of unity. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. And we've got to lay aside every difference. And we've got to endeavor to keep the peace of the bond of the spirit of God. And so I come to a close today. Abigail stood. Abigail stood quietly and humbly in the path of armed men. She stood in the path of an impending assault that would have ended terribly. Perhaps it would have ended with no way of correcting it. David said, I won't leave one, not one. Some could say that her standing in the path of these men, humbling her, herself down to the crown would be a display or a sign of weakness. But hear me, humility is not weakness. Being humble before God and others is not weak. Abigail's humility, her resourcefulness, averted an absolute bloodbath. Her gifts of provision that she provided showed her absolute strength of her grace. Abigail did what was right. And doing what is right is not always easy. But it's right. 
for the greater good for future Abigail laid herself down and became a peacemaker and hear me today because of that single act of humility she not only averted the attack that would have destroyed her whole household but she eventually became blessed in her future because of the peaceful plan that she made in the midst of the adversity. Because in the end of everything, when all was said and done, and David returned to his place, he did not remember the words of Nabal. David did not remember the disrespect that was given to him, but David remembered the grace and the humility and the humbled attitude of Abigail and because of it she became his wife hear me today David remembered her grace and her humility and she became the wife of the future king of Israel Abigail saved her household and secured her future her future protection and her future protection with the future king of Israel hear me today as we stand together as the church and as the people that God has called us to be as the people that God has called us to bear his name peaceful and humble attitude should be the defining characteristic that governs every action that we take with each other and even those that may oppose us because God God will eventually take care of every situation God will take care of every care and he will do it in his time because being the peacemakers now being what God has called us to be now will ensure our future position with the king of kings and the lord of lords God is not coming back for a week church God is coming back for a humble church who will humble themselves before him to give him everything that is due unto him and so I don't know about you today but I want to link arms with the man or the woman next to me and say let's do this together let's link our lives together let's link our hearts together let's link our spirits together and let's move forward in the intended purpose that God has for us. Would you lift your hands to heaven and would you thank him for who he is? Would you bless his name now in Jesus' name? In Jesus' name. In Jesus name. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.